when you put in to a network and when you give something to a network, you get the power of all the other people who are in that network behind you when you need it. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Every entrepreneur's dream is to build a disruptive business that transforms lives for the better and make a whole lot of money in the process. Meet Heidi Messer, an extraordinary New York City entrepreneur who, when pitching her first company, LinkShare, in the late 1990s to investors, had to have a slide in her investor deck, what is the internet and why you should care? Fast forward to today. After exiting LinkShare a decade ago for $425 million, she is on her way to disrupting a whole new industry with her second company, Collectiveye, a technology solution that analyzes big data for Fortune 500 companies. This is a trillion-dollar market opportunity. A bold and fearless thinker, Heidi compares her technology solution in Big Enterprise to the consumer solutions that Uber created to disrupt ride-sharing and Airbnb created to disrupt hotels. Heidi's powerful insights into how networks are changing the world will change the way you think about your business and social networks. Learn why she started what's been described as New York's most exclusive women-only poker game, where, by the way, the night's winnings are donated to charity. I can't wait for you to be inspired by her story. All right, so we got the two former lawyers in the studio. I have to ask, Heidi, how'd you go from being a Harvard Law student working at Baker Botts, uh, presenting a paper to Justice Stephen Breyer to founding LinkShare? So so I actually think the... Um the foray into law was the detour more than the other way around, going into entrepreneurship. Um, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs in every branch of my family tree. And I always tell people that um, when you come from that kind of family, it's very hard to rebel. So virtually the only way to do it is actually go to law school, which is what happened. Um, they didn't even go to my graduation. Totally mortified that, that they would have a child that would go into law voluntarily. And, a, a child that would want to earn a paycheck. Right. What have we done? <laughs> Where have we gone wrong? So I went there thinking, oh, you know, I, I seem to be, you know, much more in the box than the rest of my family. And when I got there, I found that um, that actually I was more of an entrepreneur than I thought I was. So it was an excellent education. It was an interesting experience. I wouldn't say it was the most pleasurable experience being uh, in law school. But um, but I learned a lot, and I did get to meet one of the Supreme Court justices, which was a phenomenal experience. And from there, I actually tried practicing. I gave it a try for about a year and a half and just was pulled uh, irresistibly back into entrepreneurship. And let's talk about, like, LinkShare. And you were, like, really pioneer in affiliate marketing, monetizing traffic on the web, how did you see that? And as part of that, I want to understand when you and your brother started that company, did you see what the end game was going to be with it? Did, 
had you been building for an exit or had you just seen an opportunity and said, where is this going to take us? No, but I'm so glad you asked that. You know, I don't build companies for the exit. Uh, I think that that's a very challenging strategy. It's it's almost like saying I know exactly the point in the future that's going to happen and all of these things are are absolutely going to follow suit. What what I think instead is is a better strategy to say I know this is a good business. I'm not sure where I'll get taken on. I may take some, you know, side paths and um and I'll, I'll end up in the place I think I'm going to end up in, but I know I have a good business. And that was that was really the fundamentals behind LinkShare. You know, the the big assumption we had to make was Will this internet thing take off? Because, you know, take yourself back to 1996. Uh, I just left this very stable, as you said, real job um, where, you know, there was a proven path. And and that was a much less risky route, you know, in my early 20s uh, and, and, and looked and said, hey, this internet thing looks like it's going to be a big deal. And that was, at the time, a pretty startling assumption. Uh, there were many, many smart people I knew who I said – you know, I'm going to give up this this education, this solid profession, and start this company when people were barely getting dial-up access to their to their internet. Uh, and, and and you know, we looked at that and we said, okay, we, we really believe this is going to be a big deal. Now the next thing is, how do you actually make this a monetizable medium? And and that's really where LinkShare was born because none of the aspects of traditional media applied to the internet. And by that I mean. You know, the distribution channel that was out there was completely different. It was 24-7 global. So you couldn't use time as a way to monetize traffic. Um, You couldn't use location because it was ubiquitous. Um, You couldn't use, you know, proprietary content because anyone in the world could publish. So how do you take that medium, which offered so many benefits, and help those benefits be realized by attaching a monetization vehicle to it? And that was LinkShare. I mean, I look at it back on it now and I see, you know, the sharing economy as we know it. That was really the first germs of that um, coming out. And, and LinkShare paved the way for a lot of other really, really exciting companies. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, what is affiliate marketing? Sure. Um, and it's so great that, you know, you'd think that there are people that know about it. Because when we started it, we had to explain it over and over again. So I'm very comfortable telling you what it is. So the idea behind affiliate marketing was that there were uh, companies that were selling things on the web. We call them merchants or um, e-commerce companies. And they needed distribution. And the best way to get distribution was to look and say there are millions of websites that had incredible content, uh, you know, kind of things like like this, this, this podcast and others. And they had to have ways of monetizing it. And so the best way for them to monetize it was to be able to either promote those commerce merchants through links, through banner advertisements, through any sort of medium, and then be paid a commission for doing that. So it was a huge commission-based network of websites that had content connecting with websites that had commerce. We're going to get into what you're doing now with Collective Eye, but you started LinkShare in 1996. You've lived through and experienced the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. You exited your company. You've started a new one. Besides the fact that this internet thing has taken off, (laughs) what's different with having a company now with having started a company in 96? 1996. What are the lessons from earlier that you're like, I'm glad I lived through it then because this is what's making me a better entrepreneur this time? Those two venture cycles, you know, to be building and creating through two of them. What are your what are your observations and insights? 
Well, first of all, I'm so grateful to have gone through everything that we went through at LinkShare, and I would not have said that to you in 2000 and 2001. Uh, but having seen one full cycle, you realize that 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 concept that I had referred to earlier of creating a good business, it, it almost doesn't matter what the cycles are if the business is solid and if what you're creating there's a real need for. That said, I'll say the one thing that's different is nobody questions whether or not the Internet's a big deal. So uh, the first five slides of our LinkShare presentation were what is the Internet and why does it matter? Uh, but what people question now is, and, and less and less so, it's actually becoming more mature, but when we started Collective Eye, it was big data. So the first five slides of my Collective Eye presentation were what is big data and why should you care? And so, you know, being a history major in college, you see history does, in fact, repeat itself. And as a repetitive entrepreneur, you start to see, you know, it doesn't necessarily play the same music over again. It might be a different um, verse of something that uh, you've seen in the past, but it actually does have, you know, things that you can refer to and say, okay, I've seen something like this before. Now I know which way to pivot. I know what the timing should be. You see something feels feels un- uncomfortable, uh, or you're like, "All right, I think I've faced this fork before. Am I am I making the right decision?" I mean, what are your thoughts too in terms of the big differences between these two cycles? We've had a few crazy years with valuations and venture. That so, wasn't. So I'm before. one of the few people who think there is not a bubble uh, right now, and and I think that for a number of reasons. I think. Uh, you're seeing the entire world being reinvented. And so I think we're at the very beginning of that. Now, does that mean that I think there are certain companies that uh, might be overvalued? Yes, absolutely. I think there are are companies out there that perhaps may be either ahead of their time and are getting the valuations for what the potential really will be in five years from now, or companies that, that people have just misvalued because there's so much hype behind them that they're getting promoted more and more. But for the most part, you know, the amount of venture investing, I think, is incredibly small today, given what I think will be in the future. To get back to your earlier question about what I think is different, I think what's different now is the battle is on two fronts. Um, it's on technology and talent. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, the technology piece is getting easier because you have all these SaaS-based platforms that you can plug into that have done a lot of the heavy lifting to get you to the place where you're just building the last mile. Um, it's the question of finding the really creative, motivated, innovative thinkers to join your team and make that happen that really is much, much different than it was when I started LinkShare. And that's not to say we didn't have talented people. We did, but we were inventing a future, and so there was a lot more room for error. And now the stakes are so much higher that you really need people that are not only incredibly gifted at the particular skills they have, but just gifted in terms of being able to scale into the next level and fast. You don't have the luxury of time that we didn't have a lot of time in the 90s, but we had a lot more time to make mistakes and to find our way than you do today. Because you've had a company before, does that help at all in the attracting and locating talent? It does. I mean, for sure it does. I think, you know, the most important thing is having a strong vision and a vision that people can get behind and understand and feel that they're making a change in the way the world was and the way it's becoming. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know, we are in such a a time of accelerated change. You almost can't find talent that's going to have the skill set that you need tomorrow. And by tomorrow, I mean literally tomorrow. So it's finding people that scale. And that's 
different than saying, okay, I need, you know, an Oracle DBA. You, you need someone who's going to say, I'm ready to learn the next five languages that come out because I know that if there's one that will help me do this one thing that's going to make our model that much stronger, I want to be able to do that. And that kind of person, always curious, super motivated, wants to learn, wants to expand themselves, that's a harder type of person to find and identify. Those visionaries. Visionaries. So let's talk collective eye. You know, why and how is it different than what you were doing before? Tell us about what 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 is because I can see it in you know if there was a video here, everyone else would be able to see like the you know you're really excited about what you're building now. I won't, like talk us through it. I'm I'm super excited about what we're building. So collective eye is short for collective intelligence. And uh, once again, we started with a premise that uh, was scary to a lot of people. So when we started LinkShare, the idea that websites would actually link to each other and pay each other something was was profoundly radical. Uh, today, our, our assumption is that enterprises, large companies, will actually pool data so they'll contribute their data to a shared pool that generates intelligence for them. And that intelligence is meant to help them make more money, um, focus on the revenue side of their business. So we start with the area of sales, and the idea behind that is that if you look at sales today, you have uh, a group of people who go to work every day, and they're schizophrenic. What do I mean by that? So they open up their mobile phones. They you know, say, I'm going to regulate the temperature in my house. I'm going to call a, a taxi through an Uber. I'm going to go on vacation and, and make money through Airbnb. They have all these very sophisticated, what I would call big data applications to make sure that they're managing their time and their resources as efficiently as possible. Then they get to work and they open up Microsoft Office. So transported straight back to the 1980s, um, they're manually inputting data, they're using Excel to analyze their decisions, they're having PowerPoint meetings where you know people sit around and debate for hours what they should be doing, uh, and then they go forth and try to conquer what Collective Eye says is, look, there's a better way. We'll take this pooled network of data. We'll take routine decisions that you make in the case of salespeople, who to call, when to call, what to say to them, and we'll actually just give you the answer through a finished application. The same way that you would get on your mobile phone for any of the activities that you were doing to manage your time or resources, you'll be able to do that at work. That's a crazy. <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> totally Crazy. But you have some interesting stats on on like how much is being spent on sales. Was it a trillion in the U.S.? So B two B sales is about eight trillion dollars worth of our economy, and about a trillion dollars is spent in the United States alone on sales teams. the The statistic that was stunning to me is that a typical sales manager spends eighty percent of their time on administrative tasks. So they have roughly, let's say, fifty days a year that they're actually out selling. And if you could actually just improve that statistic, you know, cut that time in half, you'd double a sales force without hiring a single person. Uh, and you start to think about those things. I mean, there's even more profound impacts. It's sad to say, but most companies fire about 25% of their sales teams in a year, which means every four years they're turning people over. I think one in five workers in the United States has been laid off, and I see that as directly correlated to sales because if you obviously don't have predictable revenue targets, the only mechanism you have to manage revenue is layoffs. So you see a lot of people losing their jobs, a lot of people wasting time, uh, a lot of people related to those functions losing their jobs unrelated to anything they might have done to contribute to a company. 
And if we can make our dent in reducing those downturns and making it more transparent and predictable for large enterprises, you know, my hope is that we'll actually be able to help some people keep their jobs, we'll help people be successful, uh, and help them be less frustrated in the profession they chose to go into because it wasn't administrative, because it was more interactive and, and fun. You hear so many people who say, you know, we, exactly that. We had to fire someone because they didn't meet their sales target. And what you're describing to me is how, how does anyone have a chance to do that in a short period of time in terms of getting up to speed and make a sales target when you, you don't have the tools? And it's, and it's actually miraculous to me that salespeople are as successful as they are because in, in reality today, we're asking them to be fortune tellers. So, you know, the, the way the sales process is managed, it's almost managed the way people manage the supply chain. They say, here's a pipeline and here's how many phone calls you should make. Here's how many emails you should send. It's, it's sort of broken down under, under the, you know, the ruse of, of being something scientific. But anyone who's ever done sales before, if you've ever made a cold call, I don't, have you ever made a cold call? I'm, I'm probably some scarring <laughs> situation when I had a part-time job when I was in college and I've run from it ever since. Yes. Having, having made quite a few of them myself, uh, you get very used to the fact that you actually are nothing but an influencer in the buying process. Uh, you do not make the decision. You are not, you, your actions have an impact, but a much smaller impact than, than any person could be asked to have. So, um, so what we want to do is we want to be able to take that pooled network of data and actually provide intelligence about what buyers are doing. Because if I could help salespeople have insight into, here's a buyer who's really interested in, in you know, the kind of product you're selling, you should call them today, what that stops is 100 phone calls to get to that one buyer. It helps that salesperson say, okay, now I can actually go and do my craft, which is selling, instead of trying to guess at what people are thinking and then get to the point where I'm selling. Well, you'd think in an era of, of big data and an era of, we, you know, refer to it, the knowledge economy, you know, why isn't the information in the hands of salespeople intelligent? It's crazy. It's crazy. And they are the lifeblood of companies. They are the lifeblood of companies. And the thing that's astounding to me is if you look at portrayals of them in media, so you look at the Dwight Schrute, you look at Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you think of a used car salesman, it's... You know, there's a New York Times, a great New York Times article that was written about how parents are abhor- – it's abhorrent to them to think their child might go come out with a college education and go into sales, despite the fact that a good percentage of salespeople actually make more than the CEOs for whom they work. It all comes from this lack of buyer intelligence and the actions that happen when you say to a group of people, you're going to be judged on something that is completely out of your control and not only that, I'm only going to pay you if that thing that is completely out of your control happens. So it is, it's, it's an amazing, amazing feel. And I'm, I'm so excited about it because, you know, one of the things that was immensely gratifying for me about LinkShare is we paved the way. We, we used to get stories from people who were working out of their house and were able to support their families. We had one great affiliate who was able to take care of his daughter who was sick with the income that he was making from his uh, affiliate practice. And now I look and say, I have the opportunity to help this group of people that are such an important part of our economy be more successful and and kind of revamp their image. I think, you know, when you start to see there's an art to sales and that art becomes apparent because we've provided the science 
and taken out a lot of the the guesswork that leads to some of the activities that have given sales a bad reputation. You've just empowered this whole group of people uh, to 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 be that much more successful, and that is super exciting to me. I'm not like I'm get I am getting emotional about it. I'm I'm also thinking of about a story I heard with it's like when eBay did one of their first conferences where they invited their their top. Um, the top stores on eBay, the top sellers on eBay, they invited them and they realized that the top sellers, that, you know, they had to clear out the chairs in the first rows because it, it was like you got ordered in this conference by who were the top sellers backwards and they realized they had to take all the chairs out of the, the front rows because these top sellers were people who were homebound and they were in wheelchairs and it's like you've given an income and and prosperity to people who have been marginalized economically. Like, how more powerful is that? You know? So I mean, you think about the families. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in an entrepreneurial household, and you lived and died by, you know, the sales numbers every quarter. So, you know, you knew, okay, we're, we're going to be okay in terms of a family based on how people were selling. And so it's it's a very similar idea when you think about how many – Households are dependent on companies being able to accurately predict results, and it starts. It's very directly correlated to sales, right? Because if you fail at sales, you get you get fired. I mean, there's no way of sugarcoating it. But that also has a cascading effect because companies as a whole that fail at sales, fail to innovate, end up having to you know cut their losses by getting rid of people, which means they continue to fail to innovate because they've stopped investing in their future and. It just impacts so many lives. And it, this this one problem, this problem of how do I know how to manage my revenue using science rather than gut? And that's, it's like what you said. I mean, I get emotional about it too because I feel like, you know, so much of the uncertainty that people have experienced, especially in times like now where you can get displaced so quickly. And sales is at the front line, by the way, of, of showing you when, when your products are becoming obsolete if you don't have the listening device, if you don't have the tools to very quickly become agile and adjust, entire companies, you know, start laying. And when you hear about, you know, companies like IBM laying off, you know, thousands of people, you know, size of whole towns, and you say, okay, it's a technology company in the fastest growing age of technology. How does that happen? That's what I want Collectify ultimately our mission to be to eliminate some, or if we can't eliminate it, mitigate it to a point where it's not so such a predominant risk for twenty percent of the population. Be able to have science to you know assist their gut and and, and take that and the nuances and their because I'm with you. There is an art, and I put you know salespeople on a pedestal because that is an incredible skill. But to be able to back it with the science. I'll, I'll to make say this better year. calls. I've never met a great entrepreneur who wasn't also a great salesperson. It's it's just the the two are are so inextricably linked. You know, to be able to sell an idea that no one believes in, to get people to believe in you, to to invest money with you, to get people to believe in you, to be your first customers, you have to have great sales skills. And most of the great entrepreneurs that I've met are extraordinary salespeople. They're not just good salespeople; they're extraordinary. Well, and hopefully have Collectivite to give them even better sales <laughs> skills. I like it. Well, and I'm also thinking so many of these sales jobs that you're talking about, like you think about a daily life, you know, for us out there as consumers, 
so many salespeople are women. Mm-hmm. You know, we think retail and everywhere else. So, you know, thinking about that and sort of going bigger in technology and women, what do you think the opportunities are for women right now? In technology? Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. I, I think, look, there are so many things. that You can focus a lot on the negative, and, and the statistics are pretty depressing when you when you see um, what has happened, you know, since, let's say, the mid-'90s when I started. And I actually thought that we had an opportunity to reinvent the world and have, you know, true 50-50. But I'm a positive person, and I'm an optimist. And when I look now and I say I feel this sea change happening, and I see a lot of things coming together. The first is the reality, which whether or not people have fully accepted it or digested it yet, is that women control 85% of the purchases in this country. Um, and that's another way of saying women control the economy. So you have that trend. You have the big data trend, which is um, basically train people to expect extreme personalization. So I want someone to sell to me based on me, not based on their estimation of my demographic or their best guess. I want them to know things about me and sell directly to me. So if you take the combination of those two trends, you know, 85% of the purchase in the United States, the training on personalization, I liken it to an opportunity similar to what people saw in China, you know, where they saw China as this nascent market that suddenly boomed. Everybody had to understand Chinese culture. Everyone had to understand, how do I do business in China? I think there is no company that will be able to function without saying, how do I do business without understanding women? And that means you have to enlist more women. It means more women have to be on the boards. More women have to be starting the companies. In order to realize that opportunity, and if you take the assumption that there is a cultural difference, which I believe there is, you have to have more women involved. And I think as that economic reality becomes more and more apparent, the opportunities for women will become more and more apparent. I think part of it is, too, women have to realize, like, we're not the minority. As you said, we are 85%. We are in, we're in the driver's seat, so what are we doing? (laughs) No, I, I think you and I have talked about this You know, I think the missing piece, and this is the piece that I really see being solved much more rapidly than I even imagined it could, is is the network piece. Right. And having powerful networks where women help each other. Because anytime you see a minority of the population that controls, punches above their weight, controls a disproportionate amount of the resources, it's pretty much guaranteed that there's a strong network behind that. That's operating and functioning and coordinating and making that happen. And what I see now are the creation of women's networks that are really strong and really powerful. I'm so excited about the things that you're doing, Kelly, because, you know, it's all furthering that sort of last mile. What what gets you to the place where you start to realize all these opportunities that are just sitting there waiting to be had? Well, as I like to say, there's, you know, the things we need to learn from the boys. And it's like, all right, having, and as I love the network you have, because it's like, this is about business mm-hmm. and how and where we refer business to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and realizing we have the power to do that. Um, and I think it's like not saying, oh, when we get the power. It's like, no, no, we have it now. Right. Like, why are we dissipating it? Let's jump in there and take it. Um and this is a topic we could go on for ages in terms of women's networks and the importance of them. Um, but I want to back to the intersection with Collective Eye on 
your view on the future with respect to big data, which we've alluded to, and personalization, and how you think that's going to affect networks? So I think there's a counterintuitive trend uh, that, that impacts big data and it also impacts networks, which is that the more open you are and the more willing you are to share, whether it's data, power, opportunities, friendships, the more you win. So I think that the old sort of industrialized world state of mind was you hoarded everything. You know, if you were bigger, if your company was the biggest, if you had the most power and you kept it to yourself, that's how you won the game. In the world of networks, it operates the exact opposite. So the people who hoard, the people who don't participate, the people who don't share are the ones who get left out of the winnings. And uh, in both the instance of Collective Eye, and which Collective Eye, by the way, is a network, uh, which is a big distinguishing factor for us from, from pure technology, and actual, you know, offline networks with, with people who contribute, you know, it, it, I always start off the conversation with how can I help you? And I don't expect an answer in return of let me, you know, what can you do for me? And that has served me well in my business career. That has served me well in, in the kinds of technologies we've created. Because what you realize is that when you put into a network and when you give something to a network, you get the power of all the other people who are in that network behind you when you need it. And all you have to do is ask because people know you've made the deposits without asking anything in, in return. And that openness, that sense of sharing, that sense of community, to me, that's the future. The people who get that are going to be the ones who win the biggest. Explain, you made the comment that Collective Eye is a network. Explain that. So um, so there's there's two schools of thought. I would say there's almost two religions that exist right now. There's the one that sort of worships technology and says, okay, you know, if I get the most cutting-edge technology and I implement it into either my company, my house, et cetera, um, I will then be part of this digital age. I will have made the leap from the analog to the digital. I think the second religion, which is is more the one that I subscribe to, is it's being part of and plugging into something that's bigger than yourself is what's going to make you more intelligent. And so Collective Eye is a network, very simply stated, because we don't just have technology. We've got, you know, machine learning and I could go up advanced analytics, predictive analytics. I could give you a litany of, of technologies that we use to accomplish what we accomplish. But none of the intelligence that we create would be possible without enterprises pooling data into a larger data pool. Got it. So rather than us going in and saying, here's a piece of technology, I'm going to do you know predictive analytics on top of your data set and tell you what's going to happen with revenue in the next you know month, two months, three years, five years, I say, look, your data alone is worthless to me. It's I couldn't predict anything off of it. Most companies, for example, win 2% of the time. So if I predicted a win rate off of that, I'd be able to predict the next 2%. If you want to actually predict more, I need to be able to pool all the times companies have won and say, here's how buyers behave, and then I can give you the intelligence. So you give me your data, I pool it with everybody else's data, and then I give you an answer. And that's very similar to what Google did for search. It's what Amazon did for shopping. It's what Uber did for transportation. All these are networks. LinkedIn did for recruiting. They all operate on a network concept. For you as the end user, do you care what the technology is? Right? Do you do you want to look under the hood with Google or do you want just better search? Right. That's the way it should be for companies. It's it's 
you're not asking them to give up their secret sauce. You're just asking them to give up, you know, I'm saying data the, 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 very da- little value. D- data that has no other value than other than you maybe, as you said, predict the next 2%. Look, when you go on Facebook, you tell everyone everything about your whole life, everything, which, you know, some people would argue is immensely valuable data to you. But the amount of value that you get back is so overwhelming by plugging into this network that you wouldn't even think of not being a part of it to preserve the value of this one little piece to you. It would be worthless if you didn't have a network behind you. Well, there's one time I thought of pulling my data. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone has one time. <laughs> no, I always thought, you know, that when the art, when uh, Facebook went public and they had no women on the board and everyone got an uproar, yes. I said, there's an easy answer, ladies. What is the value of Facebook if every woman stopped using well, it? Well, that's my point. If you had every woman do it, then you make a statement. If you do it on yourself, on your own, yeah. you've just taken yourself off the grid. You're <laughs> yes, it's off, yeah, off on You're Gilligan. You're Ranger. Off on Gilligan's Island. You know, let's use some more cultural references. No one knows, uh, you know, Gen, Gen X will, <laughs> other than a Gen X will understand. But, you know, it's like, you know what? And this maybe gets back to my, my thinking on it as, as women and understanding your power. If even if we hadn't taken off grid, if we all logged out of our Facebook accounts for twenty four hours or seventy two hours, you would make a statement. You, I mean, but also, what's the va- what's the value of that company if women aren't active users? No, it's true. Or if women didn't shop for one day, one day, right? I mean, think about what that would do. Crazy. No, I, no the, I, I think the last time that happened was after Lehman Brothers crashed, and we saw what happened. <laughs> Wasn't good. Not good. <laughs> not not good but at that's all. That's the power of a network. That you just described it so perfectly there. If if you're one person and you're trying to make a statement with your own stuff, your own opinion, your own whether it's your data or or your credit card or whatever, it, it doesn't have an impact. It's only when you have the network of people behind you and you're acting in sync and you're acting in each other's interest, you contribute your part and then the exponential value that comes back is so much better. Well, another way to maybe make money sometimes is playing poker. So let's talk poker. <laughs> I would not recommend that as your yeah. primary vehicle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, as, as one entrepreneur said to me, she said she's made the same amount buying lottery tickets as she's invested in buying lottery. Something along this because of the big Powerball. And, uh, you know, basically she's never bought a lottery ticket. And I said to her, yeah, because you have a startup because that's a really sensible way to make money. <laughs> But you were talking poker and networks because you've combined the two of those things. Like, why poker and what are you trying to accomplish with these poker events? So um, so when I started Linkshare in, in you know, 1996, I really saw the industry that I was entering as, as an equalizer. Uh, you know, I had, had worked in a law firm, and you, you can attest to this, that had a business framework that made it very hard to multitask and have a family and have a successful career in addition to all of the sort of unconscious biases that, that might have already existed. So the deck was totally stacked against you. And, and here I saw this industry where you could work from anywhere. Uh, the revenue models were built off of very, very scalable technologies and not human labor. And, and we had a time when, you know, 50 percent of the population was graduating from the college was female. So I thought, all right, you know, clean slate. We've we've taken away all the roadblocks, and now it's going to turn out on the other end where where we have true equality. 
And uh, and when I came up for air after selling LinkShare, you know, we were still at 17% in virtually everything. I think 18%, I heard a journalist say, was sort of the magic number. Like, it never gets above that in terms of, like, board participation, entrepreneurs who get funded, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought to myself, okay, well, what, you know, I, I think I have certain talents, but I've met so many talented women entrepreneurs that, that you know, there had to be something else at work that was stopping that equality from from coming to fruition. And the missing piece I saw was was a really strong network. And, you know, I saw and I, I benefited from networks where men helped each other. So I had, you know, men who had who were in positions of extreme power who, for whatever reason, gave me a break or invited me into their circle and gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have had without those networks. And I didn't see as much of that on the side for women, whether it was, you know, they were busy with families and couldn't do as much of the social thing or it just wasn't as much culturally natural. I think there's a great quote from Madeleine Albright who said, you know, women make wonderful friends but terrible networkers. Men make, you know, wonderful networkers but terrible friends. And 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 I said, you know, I have to figure out a way to change this. So I invited some friends of mine, uh, some women friends of mine over to my house for a poker game. And and I thought, you know, I want to learn how to play poker because it's such a good game for business. It's all about playing the odds. It's all about understanding your opponents. It's all about a lot of things that are out of your control and how do you make educated bets in that setting. And they referred friends after we did that. And they referred friends. And then suddenly I ended up with, you know, a thousand names on this list. Uh, and uh, by the way, we we do allow men in. Um, they have to be dealers. They're not allowed to play. <laughs> So we get some great men that show up. We had, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was was great. Dick Parsons, um, Dick Costello, uh, you know, just an incredible group of of guys who I think help uh, other women very quietly and understand this concept. But what you do is you get a bunch of women in the room. You play poker for three to four hours, and some miraculous things happen. People get on boards. Companies get funded. Um, it starts to operate like a very functional network. In, in beyond just a friendship sense, in a, in a pure, you know, adding economic value to all of the participants. So that's why I did it. And now it's it's turning. I mean, you've been to one of the games. You you promote. You I've, been, a great I've had the player. privilege. I was very impressed by you. Very very much the privilege of being at a couple of these. It's like you're 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 networking, and, but you're doing something. So there's not that you know, if you're saying it was a networking event, there's not that awkwardness of it. And the other course, my cheeky remark running through my head is like, guys, yeah, if you want to be in the room, you got to be useful. <laughs> Right. Well, that's you only get invited if you give more than you get. That's the that's the one you know rule that that I have that I, I live by. But you know, you think about the golf course, how much business gets done on the golf course, and it's out of the sight of any sort of formal business meetings. Or, and so this is this is our equivalent of the golf course. Um, I always feature entrepreneurs. Uh, I, I love always, that yeah, because you know what? There's there's we at our last one we actually had a couple who got funded like on the spot um, by by angel investors who were who were sitting there and. Um, that was super, super exciting to watch because, you know what, that is how it happens in Silicon Valley. And and it is, you know, it doesn't happen often. It's not, you know, I don't want to mislead people and say, okay, you just walk into a room with a bunch of great people and they're going to fund you. But if you have the right network in place with the right audience and you remove some of the unconscious biases that I think happen when women pitch businesses, the path gets a lot shorter to success. Well, it's also people trust you. And... And and you know who the audience is, and so picking the right entrepreneurs who are going to pitch at that event because their message, their product, 
there because I think the one of the um, it was it was it was what the poker event that Shaquille O'Neal was one mm-hmm. of the the uh, dealers. There was a not for profit that was part of you know and a cause that was part of the group of women who were pitching, and you're very cognizant of who is in the room and getting the right people, the right people at the tables, so it's not a random free-for-all. And you're so intentional on that that there is such a high level of trust that if Heidi's got that person up there pitching, there's something I want to listen to. We do that. We also, um, we spend a lot of time picking out the right entrepreneurs and we spend a lot of time on the seating because who you are seated next to is meant to be someone that you can do business with in addition to get along with and, and be friends with. So uh, so I'm so glad that you appreciate that because that that is something that I spend a lot of time doing. I spend a lot of time curating the list of, of who comes to see what's the maximum benefit that this group can make of this. And then the second piece is who are the right entrepreneurs to be in the room, who have the highest potential, and who are the women that are going to back them or lead them to someone else who will back them. Oh, they're incredible. Keep doing them. Thank you. Thank Keep you. doing them. Keep doing and them. And all the money goes to charity, I should say. We don't, uh, no, you don't, it's actually not a money making exercise. So, oh, no, that's the but, other part. I love it because it's, you know, it, it's also too, I like it, you know, the great lesson of, of in this day and age when we, we do want to give back and we do write uh, checks or make donations, but to do it in this really fun way um, of buying poker chips and, you know, and, and betting big because we know it's going for charity. <laughs> well, I went to last time I went to Taproot Foundation, which is run by Liz Hamburg. So it was a fa- so so the charity that we pick is either helping women and girls or run by an amazing woman. And so um, so from that perspective, like the whole event is thought through to say, okay, how can we like eke every ounce of value out of this network that we possibly can to make sure that we're advancing uh, women and and getting them forward. It's, well. It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Thank you. So before we get to our pay it forward questions, which are the questions I ask everyone, I uh, wanted to ask you, since you've now you're on your second company, any suggestions on resolving conflict with co-founders? Well, I have a very unique situation because my co-founders are all related to me. Uh, it's my brother and my husband. So uh, we have sort of a different view on conflict. And I think... The advice I would give would be more on the front end, making sure that you actually have the mechanism to resolve conflict. Because for us, I believe conflict is incredibly healthy for our business. So we we have this policy that we can say anything to each other. We can have any opinion out there. Um, we fight vehemently for the battles that we believe are worth picking, which are fewer than you would think. But when they're there, we really pick them and hash it out. And then we have an agreement that when we reach an agreement, we all stand together. So if something's decided, if a path forward's decided, and we had the conflict before, even if you are on the other side of that decision, even if it doesn't work out the way that you would have liked it to work out or the person who was advocating for it, you never look back. You go forward as a—you fight it hard, you go forward as a team, and then you never place blame on decisions that were made where everyone came to a consensus— so that would be my my primary advice. And, and that exercise is something that you don't want to go through for the first time in the middle of a crisis. Uh, you, you want to test it out before you pick your co-founder. You want to hash it out on things that are maybe less important than mission critical so that when you do get in that moment, whether it's, you know, in our case, it was 2000, 2001 or, or, or others, that you don't end up having no mechanism to resolve that conflict in a productive way. That's my advice. 
That's outstanding advice, and I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> there we are. So let's do our pay it forward questions. This is supposed to be, you know, fast answers on some things, whatever comes top of mind. Um, what are your go-to sources of information you use every day? So we have an internal tool, um, which I realize is not very helpful for your listeners, but it actually uh, analyzes information and gives me real-time insights, uh, and I have to look at that every day. Uh, in addition to that, I will just read anything that is put in front of me that someone smart gave me to look at. So, Gotta love referral networks. <laughs> Gotta love referral networks. How do you discover new information? Talking to entrepreneurs. So uh, for anyone who's listening who uh, is an entrepreneur in your community, I can guarantee you can find networking groups. Talk to everyone. The more the insane the idea is, probably the better it is. Um, Gotta love it. What book are you reading? reading a couple right now, uh, Ready Player One, uh, which I would argue is the reason that Facebook bought Oculus. Uh, Big Data Baseball is another one, which is a book that takes sort of the money ball concept and explains how it actually got implemented in, and changed the whole field of baseball. Uh, and then Super Intelligence, a book about machine learning. There I'm we are. Totally a geek. So yeah, and we were wondering if any women are geeks. We just have to look at Heidi's reading list. I uh, was in the high school band. I will admit it. I will admit it. I like losers it. in high school or winners in life. I got many good lectures growing up. I I like it. So what's the conversation we should be having in tech that we aren't having? So it's really interesting. You know, when you look at. You know, we were talking about Facebook earlier and um, and the power that social network has in the world. And, and what few people remember is when Facebook first came out, there was an uproar about privacy relating to it and, uh, and, and what it would mean to have this network or to have this whole medium, social media, where you were sharing everything about yourself and your family and your friends. And, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Mark Zuckerberg because he fought the fight. He went head on into it and said, this is too important for humanity to to sacrifice it. And so what what I would like to see is more people talking about, I, I would say, the, sort of the cost-benefit analysis around privacy. So instead of putting it up there as this sort of binary value, saying, you know, what 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 would society be like if we if we lost a Facebook? Um, what would what would society be like if we didn't have this sharing economy where everyone contributed their own data to bigger pools and you know open pools of data and then derived either intelligence from it in collectivized case or or you know connections to people around the world that help you achieve amazing things? You know that to me is a more real conversation, and, and, and I'm not saying there aren't you know costs to it. You know certainly technology for the most part is an enabler and networks are an enabler for you know great things and, and not so great things. But you can't just hold up this, you know, privacy flag and then say, you know, like kind of like what Europe did where they said, okay, we're just going to regulate these these companies out of business. I actually believe if Facebook had been launched in Europe, there would be no social media. Um, and 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 that to me, you know, is a very important thing. And, and I find it sort of ironic when, when I hear people, you know, kind of punt this whole discussion and say, well, the government needs to do something about it when, when really that's probably the biggest threat to progress um, that there is if, if, you know, regulation that's done in the absence of really thinking of the costs that are there. So um, that's, that's more of the conversation I would like to see having, you know, being discussed. What, what does it mean? What does progress mean? 
And what, yeah, and understand, as you said, cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. I think I know the answer to this one. Who are the people that most influenced you in your career? Who would you guess? <laughs> Mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, I would say family is in my case. Uh, it, you know, certainly, um, certainly my father, who's an entrepreneur, uh, my mother, who's a tremendous entrepreneur, an incredible um, woman ahead of her time who worked full time, raised a family, put us through school. Um, my father passed away very young, so she was sort of forced into that role and 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 rose to the challenge and, and exceeded it. Uh, my brother, my husband, um, and there's whole been a whole lot of entrepreneurs. A whole lot of entrepreneurs. <laughs> everyone, everyone that that was involved in either raising me or is related to me deeply, intimately, uh, has influenced me. What's the best advice you ever received? Um, well, you have two choices. You can work hard when you're young and have it easier when you're older, or you can have it easy when you're younger and work a lot harder when you're older. So I chose the path of working really, really hard in my 20s and 30s. And it's not, it's, I say this, and this is what any entrepreneur will say, I work harder now than I have ever worked before, but it's out of passion. And, uh, and that's because I laid the framework when I was younger. Outstanding advice. What makes your work fun and rewarding? Uh, every day is different. Um, not always in a positive way, but for the most part, you know, you feel like you're moving towards something that is progress and and building something that didn't exist and you're leaving a mark on the world and changing it in some meaningful way. So if you have to reach into your wardrobe for something to uh, kick butt in, what do you grab? Oh my gosh, I have these amazing boots I just bought that are... I'm obsessed with shoes, obsessed with oh, them. So. you're talking to me. I get it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that's, it's an easy one. I'm picturing them in my mind, and I'm starting to drift off. So. Okay, all right. We've got to get you back here for one more question, and you do so much, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you pay it forward for women? So I think the, the poker game is a good example. Uh, for me, it's mainly things that are behind the scenes, making sure that Women get connected to the people that will give them the shortest path to success. And and doing something that has no immediate benefit to me or even no long-term benefit, but I know will make someone get to where they're going to get to, but in a much easier fashion. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. On the next episode of Broad Mike, we have a panel of three product experts. Tammy Reese, creator of the new Gmail plugin, Just Not Sorry, that's been making news. Nikki Koritsky, product manager at Shutterstock. And Alessandra McGinnis, product manager at Autodesk. If you have questions about the lean startup approach, how to build a world-class product, or how to hire and manage top technical talent, learn from the experts who do it every single day. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike and grow the Broad Mike community. Broad Mike is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.